Hey, storytellers, we won't be following the usual format for today's show. This episode will be split up into two different segments. The first segment is a standalone where it's just you and me. And the next segment is a re-airing of Jacqueline Woodson's episode that I pulled from the archives. Okay, so let's jump right in. I want to acknowledge that though I've tried my very best, I have not been able to keep up with the usual publishing schedule here at 88 Cups of Tea. Though we still publish all 88 Cups of Tea podcast episodes and articles slated for release, there's been delays for some of the content throughout the past two and a half months, which I'm sure you've noticed. Since the start of the pandemic, I've been taking care of my community of Asian immigrant elderly and the underserved here in New York by providing hot meals and produce and pantry essential to those in need. There's quite a few of you who are aware of this community-driven work that I've been doing through the grassroots organization called Heart of Dinner that I co-founded with my girlfriend Moonlin Tsai. So a huge thank you to all of you who have been so supportive in this work that I've been doing. I'll be very honest, I've been stretched thin and have been really, really exhausted from pushing through day by day, and I'm doing my best to uplift my communities during this time, which includes the 88 Cups of Tea community. I honestly could not have done this without my 88 Cups of Tea team, who, especially during this pandemic, have been so understanding and compassionate about what's been happening around the world and have been 100% on board with everything I've been doing by showing up and removing the weight of tasks and responsibilities from my shoulders. A heartfelt thank you to Rachel Colbert, who's been with us since the very start of 88 Cups of Tea and takes care of all the written content here. A heartfelt thank you to Andor Sperling, who's been taking care of all of our audio post-production for years and years and years. And a heartfelt thank you to Story Long, who's been taking care of communications here at 88 Cups of Tea. I'm so lucky to be surrounded by a team who has my back and has been doing such an incredible job and allowing me the space to show up and do the tangible community work when it's needed the most. Because of my team's collective efforts at 88 Cups of Tea, along with the community support we've received through Heart of Dinner, I've been able to quickly scale our food relief hub and onboard multiple different restaurant partners and social services organizations. As of this week of June 8th, my girlfriend and I and our restaurant partners have provided a total of 12,867 meals to the elderly immigrant and underserved residents living here in Chinatown, Lower Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. And this includes the collective meals of hot lunches and dinners and customized care packages along with bulks of produce and pantry essentials to last for weeks, getting us closer to our goal of providing 20,000 meals. All of our meals are paired with handwritten letters in Chinese and Korean to counter the isolation and hate that the Asian community has received due to xenophobia and racism surrounding the coronavirus. And our weekly deliveries are something that the seniors look forward to every single time. So a tremendous thank you to everyone who has played a role in helping us create this ecosystem where we've been supporting our local neighborhood mom-and-pop restaurants in their recovery process while they help us make the most delicious meals to include in our meal assistance for those who have been overlooked during this food shortage crisis.
Now, I want to speak to you about human rights and how the Black community has been reminded over and over again endlessly about the violence that's inflicted on them and their communities. And I want to preface this by saying up front that I am not an activist or an organizer, as I feel that would be a huge insult to the ones who've been bearing all of the burden and doing endless years of hard work to make monumental changes for our society. I am speaking to you as the founder and podcast host of 88 Cups of Tea, and I am speaking to you also as an Asian American ally. And to get into more details, my dad is Taiwanese and my mom is Chinese Malaysian. I am speaking to a mostly non-Black audience about the knowledge that I've gained from Black activists and organizers and organizations that I'm learning from, and also combining my own knowledge about the anti-Blackness that I've observed from my own experiences as someone who's navigated the world through an Asian-American lens, being raised by immigrant family members, growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood, and splitting time on weekends in Flushing, Queens, where there's a predominant Chinese immigrant population. My hope is that the knowledge that I've gained is passed on to you in a digestible way. Echoing the facts loud and clear, America was built out of violence and oppression, and Black and Indigenous bodies have always been in danger. Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, George Floyd, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Michael Brown are just a few of the recent names of people who have been murdered at the hands of the police. The racist system we have always lived in has allowed every single person, except for Black and Indigenous people, to benefit from it. We've all been complicit in some way, shape, or form by benefiting from anti-Blackness. Over the past several weeks, I've researched, read, watched, and listened to various sources to have a deeper understanding of the systems and structures in the world. I'm learning about my own proximity to whiteness and how that has specifically benefited me privileges over the years. And I'm learning more about the colorism that exists in my own Asian community and how that was shaped through association with upward mobility for some and for others, how lighter skin tones are often put on a pedestal in post-colonial countries and afforded privileges than those with darker skin. I've noticed that myself growing up and traveling around different Asian countries. If you haven't already, I invite all Black, Indigenous, and people of color to examine our own ingrained stereotypes and prejudices with colorism within our own ethnicities. As you know, I myself am a person of color, specifically Asian American, and that does not exclude me or my Asian American community from stepping up to be proactive and holding each other accountable and examining our own relationship to whiteness and how that has benefited us as a whole community, while the Black community has had to carry all the burden and weight. The Asian American community has so much we owe to the Black activists during the civil rights movement, whose activism roots allowed us to learn how to claim ownership of our own Asian American movement and identity to start our own journey of creating profound shifts for our people. This is something that I honestly learned more recently, and it's a crucial part of history that we need to know about and share with our family members and friends. I continue to research, wonder, and question how we can break apart the system to truly transform that paradigm to result in real change for the Black community in relation to my own existence as an Asian American. 
Speaking up to strangers in public settings, in addition to educating and bringing awareness to our own relatives and friends, can make impactful changes, especially if you're white, living in an all-white neighborhood with all-white family and friends. Please do your part in speaking up so that the emotional labor is not on the Black community. To be an active and true ally, we need to use our privilege and resources to counter bias within our own personal circles. There's, of course, an obvious distinction of being able to disassociate oneself from those who proudly stand for KKK and neo-Nazis, but then the lines become blurred once racial microaggressions come into play, and suddenly most people who are usually loud about calling out KKK and neo-Nazis as racist people, those same people are suddenly quiet when it comes to microaggressions. So I want to assign you some homework. After we finish up this episode, Google examples of racial microaggressions. Study them to really internalize how that's harmful for the Black community. And the next time you hear someone in your neighborhood, your workspace, or at dinner parties and family gatherings saying something microaggressive, speak up to do your part in disrupting racism. I, too, am doing the homework and the research in checking myself to make sure that I am not contributing to microaggressions. So this very well holds true for my Asian American community, too. We must do better as a whole and do our part to speak up to our own family members, our non-Black POC friends, and our white friends. I've looked into different ways I could hold myself accountable in continuing my work of proactively uplifting the Black community. I've also examined the ways where I haven't shown up and can do much more. I invite you to stand with me and go through your own resources and see how you can contribute by donating to causes and organizations that are making pivotal changes for the better. Monetary donations are always helpful, of course, as it allows organizations to mobilize with the resources and tools that they need. Some other helpful actions to take that are not monetary-based in case not everybody is in a position to be able to donate are signing petitions to add your voice in demanding for justice and making phone calls to legislators. And the phone calls are actually new action steps that I only recently discovered and put into place. You can also support Black-owned businesses that create the products you'd usually use in your day-to-day over the years, I've invested in online courses like one-off business classes and also taken fun hobby classes like plant propagation from Black entrepreneurs who are the best of the best in their fields. Those are just a few small examples of where you can invest your hard-earned dollars as money really does help to allow for tangible changes. And then I invite you to take another step to see how you can make certain adjustments to commit to making contributions on an ongoing basis that is genuinely sustainable for you. This is something that I've been figuring out for myself on how to do that through me as Yin Cheng and also through 88 Cups of Tea. Not everyone is in a position to do so in a monetary way, so if there are ways that you can volunteer for organizations making real changes for the Black community or speak up in social settings like I had mentioned earlier, then do so. And if and when you run into people who are insecure about their own fragility and act defensive, try to meet them at their entry level conversationally to get your points across. Many of us understand how frustrating and exhausting this can get, 
And I'm not saying to cut out all of your friends or family members if they don't agree with you right away. I do not believe in the cancel culture, except in rare circumstances. I don't believe in using one's knowledge as a self-righteous weapon against those who are not as knowledgeable. I find that in most cases, people then are afraid to do the work of self-education and even more afraid to admit that they were wrong, which then leaves no room for growth and really slows down societal transformation as a whole. So if possible, try to educate and bring about awareness with love and respect for each other and really try to begin the conversation with a shared common ground. I've also been hearing about buddy systems where friends hold each other accountable in this. So I encourage you to create your own peer accountability system where you and your buddies commit to ongoing education and action taking. And it's great to have a support system too. One of the educators I've been learning from is Sonia Renee Taylor on Instagram, and I've learned so much from the questions that have been posed for us and to us, and I want to pass them on to you and invite you to self-analyze along with me. Ask yourself, what's your own personal investment in the benefits that are given to you by being white? And if you're a non-Black POC like me, ask yourself, what's your own personal investment in the benefits that are given to you by leaning adjacent to whiteness? How have we been complicit by benefiting from anti-blackness? And what changes can we make so that this does not come at the cost and at the expense of black lives? I am urging you to see how we exist within these frameworks built and structured by colonialism and how we can make sustained and lasting changes of progress by breaking out of the colonial logic that's been indoctrinated in all of us. I feel like we've arrived at this historic moment where we are slowly starting to see some instrumental changes from the decades and decades of activism work that led us to where we are today with an additional push from all the incredible work that the protesters have done marching for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor most recently. And we need to figure out a way to keep this momentum going off the streets as well. Over the past five years, I've built 88 Cups of Tea with a mission to always have a warm and welcoming presence in the digital world so that everyone would feel at home. To have conversations with creative minds like authors and learn about their journey as humans and artists navigating the world as storytellers. I've been learning so much about the challenges that they've faced and the dreams and wishes they've held onto their entire childhood. And through these conversations, I see very clearly how artists are the ones who speak to culture and that we need artists to move the needle in shifting culture for the better. For the 88 Cups of Tea community, a majority of you are adult authors who write for young adults. What I just mentioned about the impact that artists have on our culture, I find this particularly true for our community in that you have an unbelievable amount of impact in shaping our future into a world that upholds real justice and true equity for all. In order to finally get to that fair place for all, we must continue amplifying and making space for Black voices until they are finally heard and accepted with the same urgency and the same respect that white voices have been receiving throughout history. 
for my storytellers, those of you writing your own experiences as a Black person existing in this world, keep writing your stories and do not stop. For those of you who are white and non-Black POC, keep writing stories that are truthful to your own experiences and examine the ways where you can uplift the Black community without taking the mic from them. Do the homework and examine yourselves and your relationship to how you've benefited from the system and find ways to tear it down so we can all contribute to a long overdue societal transformation for a more just future. For all of my storytellers who are book lovers and avid readers, demand for stories that amplify and highlight the different narratives from Black authors. Use social media to get the word out. Write letters and call publishing houses to put pressure on them to invest in these stories. Call your local libraries and local bookshops. Find creative ways to show the world that we want and need these voices to impact and shape our culture for the better. Thank you so much for spending time with me and listening to my thoughts with love today. I know the heart of our community has always been in the right place, and I'm proud to have a community who've been willing to do the work, and I have full faith that you are the same kinds of people who are committed to continuing the work and the self-learning. I am far from perfect, and I do not have all the answers, and I commit to continue learning, growing, self-analyzing, and taking action with as much humility as possible. And I hope you'll join me. I also have to say, if you're feeling uncomfortable a lot of the times, that's okay. And that's okay to question yourself and your upbringing and your perspectives. That's good. That's a good sign. That means that you are being enlightened and opening your eyes to the day-to-day realities for Black people. And this is a good sign because that means this is room for your own growing and evolving as a person, as a human as someone who's wanting to lean further in with moral integrity. Let's keep pushing forward. I've been working on a resource page, gathering the links to all the podcasts, books, documentaries, and movies that I've been learning from. And I've also been gathering the links to all the organizations I've donated to. Please visit 88cupsoftea.com slash learn for the resource page. Know that this is an ongoing list that I will continually update as I come across more information to share with you. Again, that's 88cupsoftea.com slash learn. Now for our next segment, I re-listened to my interview with Jacqueline Woodson that was published on 88 Cups of Tea back in March of 2016. And I decided to pull this from the archives to re-air because it's devastatingly clear that many of the issues we talked about in this conversation that was recorded over four years ago still resonates till this day. Jacqueline Woodson is a changemaker and a leader of our time. She's the author of over 30 award-winning books for children and young adults, including From the Notebooks of Melanin Sun, Miracles Boys, Hush, Locomotion, Coming on Home Soon, and Behind You. Three of Woodson's books have won the Newbery Honor, Show Way, Feathers, and After Tupac and Dee Foster. Her most recent books include the young adult novel Beneath a Meth Moon, Brown Girl Dreaming, a novel in verse about Woodson's family and segregation in the South, which won the National Book Award and the Newbery Honor Award, and Red at the Bone, which was an instant New York Times bestseller. We discuss Jacqueline and parts of her life story as an artist. 
Throughout the conversation, we also discuss racism and the injustices that the Black community have had to face. Throughout our call, you'll also discover how Jacqueline fostered and developed her love for writing at a young age and found her passion for putting people on the page who have been historically absent from literature. She shares crafting tips for bringing characters to life and giving them depth, and we unpack why it's crucial to write fearlessly and write about what we know. Listen deeply and learn about Jacqueline as a human and a storyteller. Now let's jump right in. Hi, everyone. We have the incredible Jacqueline Woodson with us today. I am so, so honored to have her on the show with us. You have no idea how excited I've been. Jacqueline, how are you? Thank you so much for being here with us today. I am great, and I'm really happy to be here. Oh, I'm so excited. Well, Jacqueline, I'd really, really love to know, first of all, how did you find your footing in the world of writing? I think I always knew I wanted to be a writer since I was really young. So I just wrote all the time, and I didn't know how I was going to get published or what was going to happen. But I, first and foremost, I knew that I loved writing. I loved the physical act of writing. I loved storytelling. And I went to school. I majored in English. And and I was writing in college. I was writing for the literary magazine. I was sending out stories to the New Yorker. And by the time I was between my junior and senior year, I had landed a book deal for with Mason. Wow. Did you have writers in your family as well? Or was this encouraged at home? Because it seems like you just went for it. I do not come from a family of writers. I come from a family of hardworking people. My mom came to New York City as part of the Great Migration from the South. And her idea was that we were going to get jobs and we were going to go and earn paychecks. So she was not <laughs> encouraging in terms of a career. But she made us read all the time and she took us to the library all the time. And my family told stories all the time. So there was those two messages going on. The one that said you need to find a career, get a job. And the one that said story is really important to the world. Did you feel like you had to find secret times to write in your own private times? And was that sort of hidden from your mom until you started publishing? No, no, I never had to hide it because as long as I was being quiet and entertaining myself, <laughs> she was happy and she wasn't discouraging of it. She loved the fact that I loved words, but she was she just didn't know what that meant to go off and, you know, have a career as a writer and work from your home and like, what kind of craziness was that? But I, but I never had to hide it. And I never had to hide reading because she just thought reading was the most amazing thing you could do. How did your family define failure? Because that's something I'm always curious about, especially coming from an Asian background. There's always different ways of how they define failure. How was yours? Well, definitely academic failure was not mm. tolerated. Me too. Also, just not trying <laughs> My mother would get really mad at us if we said we can't. As adults, we didn't earn a living. I think her big thing was, how will you earn a living? And so if we needed to borrow money from her or something, that was failure. That was like, <laughs> you're supposed to be a grown up. You're supposed to be taking care of yourself. Like what, what went wrong? I'm laughing here because it just sounds just like my mom. <laughs> oh my gosh. With that, this is jumping in real quick, real fast. I know that you do have a family with your partner, with your wife, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I also am with a woman too. And I came out to my family just uh, this past, well, last year, and it was a bit of um, 
Whoa, shock, especially I think also, again, my cultural background, it's really even more taboo. I'm sure you shared that with your mom. And how did she accept the news? My family was very religious. I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian family Mm -hmm. and they were, and I grew up with my mom and grandma and they weren't happy at all. I mean, my mom was just like, you need to join the army or something. Like where, and and I, I know now that Everything we do is a reflection on them somehow. It's like, yeah. what will the friends think? Where what, what will the relatives think? What will the neighbors think? And it took my mom a really long time to realize that my sexuality was not about her. It was about me and my own happiness. But they struggled with it. They struggled whenever I wrote books that had queer topics in them. They struggled with my girlfriends. Mm. And I think they even struggled with my femininity, like anything I did that seemed even remotely masculine, because their idea of what gay person was, was, you know, a guy had to be really effeminate. A woman had to be really butch. And Mm. they came out during a time where only the really kind of physically recognizable queer people were known to them. And so they didn't know about nuance. They didn't know that there were all kinds of ways that people are gay. Some people choose to have kids. Some people choose not to. Some people are more feminine. Some people, you know, trans was not even in the vocabulary. So there was a lot that they didn't know. And so they definitely struggled with it. And my partner now, Juliet, they, my mom passed away and my grandma passed away, but they both oh, adored her. They adored her. Oh, that brings a smile to my face. I, I love hearing that. When you mentioned that you brought in characters that are gay characters, how did that affect you as a person? Do you feel like it was more empowering to write about it, whether it's through different characters? So I started out with the intention of putting people on the page who had historically been absent in the pages of literature. And I think that was really important and affirming for me because as a young person, there were so many people I didn't see on the page, myself included, too often. And so I think that really did help me kind of talk about stuff like queer issues, talk about things like race and economic class and gender and all of these questions that I had and all of these invisibilities that were in the quote unquote mainstream world. How do you actually bring your characters to life? Because your characters have a lot of depth to them. How do you make them so well-rounded and whole. I make them that way by rewriting. (laughs) I rewrite and I rewrite and I rewrite and I rewrite. And with each rewriting, I'm investigating more of that depth. So look like, but what they think and why are they there and what are they trying to say and how are they trying to say it and why? And so with the rewriting, it gets revealed. And when I put them in the room with someone else, that lets me know a little bit more about them. I remember writing the character in After Tupac and Dee Foster, who had gone to jail for something that he didn't do. And he was queer and he was very effeminate. And I was asking the question, what does it mean to be gay and effeminate and in prison? And what does it mean about mass incarceration? And what does it mean about justice when you haven't even committed a crime? And so all of those questions are going through my head. And as they do, I'm developing the character through the questions. I've read and I heard about how, for example, Judy Bloom says that your books it does have challenges brought upon them. Of course, your stories have brought in so many awards and at the same time, many challenges, right? So Mm -hmm. I'd love to know how you'd advise listeners if they're facing something like that, how they can embrace 
or deal with these kind of challenges so that they can stand strong and move on and move forward and not feel discouraged for basically Mm -hmm. speaking their voice? That's a really good question. I think it's important to walk through the world unafraid. I mean, I think life is so short. Mm -hmm. And the last thing you want to do is look back regretfully and think, I should have said, I should have written, I should have taken that chance. I should have stood up, you know, whatever it is, there's no getting back the thing that you let go of or the thing that you were too afraid to embrace. And for me, in terms of writing, I know that I'm not going to write something everybody loves. And that's not why I write. I write because I want to love my writing. I write because this story means something deep to me. And that's what matters. And it means something deep to someone else because they challenge it or or they challenge it because they're afraid. And I write it because I'm not afraid to write it. And so I think that looking at that fearlessness inside all of us and really going for it and saying, what is it I have to lose? You know, if you're afraid of your parents not loving you, they might not for a minute, but they will, you know, at some point they're going to have to move or lose. And, you know, all the world is not going to love us. There's going to be people in the world who adore us and there are going to be people in the world who think we should be censored to the marrow. So I don't let myself be silenced. And I think of Audre Lorde a lot who said, you know, we can sit in our corners mute as bottles and we'll still be no less afraid. And I always think that's such an Mm. important thing that Do we walk through the world silently and stay afraid or do we speak out and do what we need to do and be less afraid because we've done it? Yeah, I love that. And I love that you said to write what's really true to you. And even if you think your parents, for example, are not going to be able to deal with it, they will eventually. Now, Mm -hmm. I do wonder too, like being a parent, I know you have, you raise your kids beautifully and you sound like an awesome mom. And I want to know, and the thing is, I'm not a mom myself, but Uh when I do writings and write things that are true to me, I do worry about I'll be honest about what my parents do think. And I do worry, am I making them lose face? And I do worry about Mm -hmm. things like that that shouldn't have to even be a subject at all. You know, it upsets me at times, but I feel like, Mm -hmm. is there a responsibility? But you being a mom, when you write your work and you write what's true to you, do you ever think in the back of your head, like, is this something that's going to make my children proud? reversal rather than our parents, but our children. (laughs) You know, it's so funny because my daughter is 13 now. She'll soon be 14. And she was on the school bus with her friends and her friend had her phone and I had texted her and her friend sees my name and she's like, you got a text from Jacqueline Woodson. You know, Jacqueline Woodson. (gasps) And and she was so... (laughs) Gleeful to tell the story. And it's basically, this is, you know, you, you kind of have this idea that you're going to be there everything, right? And then, yeah. you know, they're going to brag about you. And my mom is a famous writer. It doesn't come to pass. <laughs> like, you know, my son who is seven says he gets props on the school bus for knowing me. Oh, that's um, so but- cute. <laughs> but he gets, he gets, he gets bus cred. And I think awesome. that Yeah, he's so funny. And so I don't write about them. Mm. So, you know, and if even with Brown Girl Dreaming, when I was writing about my siblings, 
I showed them everything I wrote and said, is this okay to say about you? Because this is me Mm -hmm. telling your story through my lens. So I want you to be okay with it. But that's because that's nonfiction. And I think the same of my kids. If I was going to write nonfiction about them, I would run it by them and say, is it okay for me to talk about the time, you know, you danced naked in the swimming pool when you were seven, (laughs) you know, even though it is about having that deep respect for people. Mm. I think fiction is different. You know, I remember Mm. writing a short story and the grandma was like white and Scandinavian. And my grandmother was like, well, why did you make me Scandinavian? It's like, it's not you. (laughs) So, so I think there are challenges there, but it is about having a respect for the people. If you're telling stories that have an impact on them somewhere. And when I write stories with gay people, if my mom is ashamed to read them because Mm -hmm. there are gay Mm -hmm. people in them, that's not my problem. You know, that's the work that Mm -hmm. she has to do. That's not my work. I'm taking that to heart. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, good. Jacqueline, I'd really love to know if there's, I'm sure there's many, and this is going to be a difficult question, but try to choose one proudest moment in your career that you can share with us. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) This is really hard. That is so hard. I can't, I can't even. I would have to say it was when Marley held up Brown Girl Dreaming and she started this campaign to get 1,000 Black Girl books because the books she was reading did not have people who look like her on the pages. And so she started a campaign to get more books with people who look like her on the pages. And my book was one of the books that she, you know, really loved and respected. And it was a really proud moment for me because this is the work I started out to do Mm -hmm. so that no one would have to go into a book and not see some reflection of themselves on the page. And then to have it come full circle 25 years later and have a little girl who was the age I was when I realized that there weren't enough representations of me and the people I love on the page to hold up a book I had written and said, here is where I'm represented on the page, made me deeply proud. That's a good one. You actually (laughs) did a great job with that one because I know there are many moments, but yeah, that one too. I'm here sitting with my jaw open. I was like, yeah, that's a pretty awesome moment. (laughs) But Jacqueline, now contrary to that, is there a moment that you can share with us? And you know, as writers, there are many moments where we face a lot of lull moments, whether it's like the longest writer's block in the world or something may have happened personally that affected or we felt like crippled us with our inspiration for writing or created a fear and a wall and a barrier. Has that ever happened to you? And if it has, how did you overcome it so that whoever's going through it, listening to this can also find some inspiration from it? Another really good question. I would have to say the first time it happened was during 9-11 when I was pregnant with Toshi, Mm. my daughter, and trying to get back to New York where I live and not knowing who had lived or who had died and just being really, really afraid and knowing that my world was changed forever. It was changed forever and it was going to keep changing. And to be in that moment of bringing a child into a world where that had just gotten that devastated was so terrifying. And writing seemed to be so unimportant compared to the enormity of things going on. And when I started writing again, 
it was to have a catharsis. Writing felt like the only thing I had the power to do. And so I wrote myself through it. And I feel like, you know, I wrote Behind You. I wrote Showway. I wrote Locomotion. I wrote all of those books through the grief of 9-11. And then when I was writing Brown Girl Dreaming and my mom had just died suddenly and I realized I had all these questions I wanted to ask her. And, you know, now she wasn't there to ask. And I interviewed relatives and I interviewed my dad and I interviewed my aunts and stuff and just found out who she was before she was my mom. And there was so much healing in that. And the thing that has stopped me from writing has also been the thing that has made me start writing again. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's a bit personal too. You have a family and I am curious what you think about just the the school, like having kids and knowing that you put them through school. Is there anything that you feel like school actually kills in in the spirits of kids, or if it's like, if there's anything that you think that should be corrected in the school system? So I think the thing about school is, and my friend Jung Wan had said this to me, that you have to kind of decide where you're going to sacrifice your child. You know, are you going to send them up to a private school and then have them be one of a few kids of color in a very small classroom with all of these great privileges? Are you going to send them to public school that's really racially diverse and overcrowded classrooms? Or are you going to send them to a school that has economic diversity? And so there's all of the, that thought that goes into the making of an education for your child. And I feel like for me, it is that question of having the privilege to make those decisions, which I have to count my blessings about first and foremost. And then my partner and I talk about everything. Mm. Our family is so completely transparent, sometimes much to our kids' dismay. <laughs> and, and, they, and my partner's a physician and works at Callan Lord, which is a clinic here in New York for the majority of the population is gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. And so we talk a lot about trans identities. We talk about racism. We talk a lot about sexism and, and gender identity and being black in this country. My partner's um, white and Jewish, but secular and what it means to be mixed race. And so, and, and also, I don't know if you know, but we have a very extended family. My daughter's half sister is part Korean, part white, and they share her dad, James, who is white. So awesome. And then she has another half sister who's half Korean and half Puerto Rican. So, you know, Lunar New Year is a huge thing in our house. Like, so it really is a family that we can't avoid talking about stuff. And so they know when there are injustices in the classroom, even the teacher saying boys go to one side of the room and girls going to the other. And if you don't know, I can't help you. Like they know that's wrong. And, right, and right. I think it's hard because we want them to be good students and we want them to do well in school. And we also know that we have to also feed that with the stuff the schools can't give them. This actually inspired another question. Knowing how outspoken you are and your kids obviously, I'm sure, have read your works and the discussions of being so transparent at home and being very, very aware about things going on in the world. I know you moved from the South to New York, and I'm also from New York, and I've definitely had... Racist comments said to me, I'm Chinese Malaysian. 
When I used to go to Florida a little bit, I felt it more there. But in New York, yes, even though it's a big city, I still feel it. I see it from multiple different races towards my race, you know, and getting me confused with Korean people, Japanese, and very, very also sexist comments. Now, I was raised very like... Don't don't cause trouble mm. or you're going to hurt yourself. You're a female. You don't have the strength to fight back physically with a man. You know, it's like that fear, that fear mentality. Mm-hmm. But you're so badass, like fierce and like, you know, you, <laughs> you are like, no, you stand up for yourself. So now this is so interesting to me because I never grew up with this. How your kids are when they're able to, obviously they're able to recognize what is morally right and what's morally wrong way quicker than <laughs> most people. How do they deal with things that I'm sure still goes on in New York. Every day. Comments. So every day. Are they outspoken about it? And do you encourage it or as a parent, you know, because also there's naturally that fear that you want your kids to be safe. Yes. But how do you deal with that and tell your kids how they should deal with it? It's a really good question. It's so funny. A couple of days ago, my son is, he's so kooky. He came home and he said, you know, the kids in my class, they don't know what sexism is and they don't know what racism is. I feel like I'm walking inside an episode of Blackish. Oh <laughs> and I just started cracking up because he's <laughs> constantly explaining stuff. Whereas my daughter, because she's a teenager and she's quieter about it, but she will call someone on their homophobia in a minute and mm. she'll do it in a very gentle way. And sometimes they'll come home and say stuff that was said at school. And the first thing I say is, well, did you say something? What did you say? (laughs) Like, you know, no, I didn't. I just sat back and I listened and, and maybe they saw the look on my face and I, you know, and I have to kind of shift myself because I'm like, they have to walk in these worlds every day. And sometimes it's the microaggressions. It's the, um, you know, it's the homophobic comments. It's the comments about being biracial kids. Mm -hmm. We live in Park Slope and we're the only family of color on our block. And so, so we get a lot of stuff and you just kind of see it. And you see the people who don't, you know, I'm almost six feet tall, I'm dark skin and people who, you know, you'll see them move their bag or look kind of nervous when they see me coming. You know, it's a constant, constant. And and my, we were at a friend's house and they have a son who's white and, and he had all these toy guns. And Jackson was like, how come I don't get to have a gun? And we're like, you know why you can't have a gun? Like, and it's heartbreaking. Like, not like we would let him have a toy gun anyway, (laughs) you know, but the truth of it is in this country, black boys can get killed for holding toy guns. So, so, you know, they are very aware and they are aware of the injustice of what it means to be in this country, you know, in the 21st century in some way. So, so we do talk a lot about it. Jumping back a little bit, for listeners who are working on their own stories right now and maybe struggling and those who want to weave in social awareness, but they're feeling stuck. They're feeling like, Mm -hmm. man, I'm starting to sound like I'm preaching rather than connecting Mm -hmm. human to human. How do you advise these listeners working on those stories to get through that hump, like to create grounded stories without sounding like they're lecturing and scolding but more so being empathetic and understanding. Yes. I always say, what is the story you would want to read? You know, as writers, I never write to teach. If I was going to do that, I'd write textbooks. But I write mm. because I have all these questions. And I think it's really important to write with the questions, not write trying to teach someone something and write with empathy. Once readers love your character, they will do whatever they can to protect that character and they will follow that character on any 
journey that character is going to take them on. So what is it that makes your character lovable? Like what makes your character someone we want to spend time with? And they don't have to be a you know, good character, but they have to be a well-written I always say my writing is not physically autobiographical, but it's emotionally autobiographical. So if I'm writing and it's a really sad scene, and if I'm not tearing up, then the scene is not working. Mm. If I'm really angry, then that goes onto the page. And so those emotions come through. And that's where I start with just trying to get at the deep emotion of the moment rather than trying to get at what the story is trying to tell someone. <laughs> that sounds very doable, too. Those are bites that people can listen to and actually apply to their own story. How important do you think it is to have a mentor in a writer's career? For me, I have books that I go back to again and again. I read A Treat Rose in Brooklyn all the time. I read The Bluest Eye. I read Raymond Carver. And each time I read those books, I learn something new. I think it's really important to have a writing group of people you trust and keep it really, really small and keep it really regular. <laughs> like, don't let people flake out and not do their work. Kick them out mm, if like they do. Like a writing workshop. Yeah, yeah. But with people you like, not one that you get together at your school <laughs> and some people you don't like their writing or they don't get your writing. Like make it with people who, you know, have some of this. I did a writing group here and it was a writing group for women of color and it was all women. It was all women of color and it was fabulous. And I started it off for them. I stayed for a year and then they kept it going for another five years. So it's really important to build that trust base Mm -hmm. in the community with other writers and then really work hard inside to make sure people show up, read each other's work critically and, you know, help move the writing to the next place. For these listeners who don't really know how to have access or to find these writer groups, Mm -hmm. do you have a little tip on where to start looking? If they're in school, they can start looking in their English classes. (laughs) If someone shares some work and they really like how that person writes, go up to them and say, hey, do you want to share work maybe once a month or, you know, maybe over the holidays? And then do you know one other person who might want to join us? Also, you know, for social media, you can probably find, feel out some people on Facebook or Twitter. And, you know, if you're starting the group, you can set the tone. Here's what, you know, we only share three pages and we do it every three months. And, you know, if you can't stick to this, then we're going to have to press on without you. <laughs> so so I think there are places you can go. But even if you can't find the people, I say you can still write and you're not writing inside a bubble if you have books that you're reading to study. Because you, you know, you cannot be a writer if you're not a reader. And you should be studying the text. You should be reading Bird by Bird by Annie Lamott and On Becoming a Novelist by John Gardner. And, you know, I would even say Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. There's so many lessons we can learn from reading other writers. And you know what, Jacqueline, that was actually the question I was going to wrap it up with was asking you if there's any books that you recommend for our listeners to check out, but you basically just did. And if there's anything else you want to throw in for a book, you could mention it now. Oh, man, I would say Anna's work. I love her first name is A-N. Her last name is N-A. I would read House on Mango Street. I know everybody's read it. But it's a great way to study vignette. I would read the poetry of Cornelius Edie, especially You Don't Miss Your Water. Another way to learn about just getting the story on the page line by line. But there's so many great books out there. (laughs) 
That's amazing. I'm going to have those linked up for your show notes page so our listeners can check it out and click on it. Awesome. And Jacqueline, thank you so much for your time. You've been awesome. I had oh. a lovely time chatting with you. Thank you. Thank Me you. Thank too. you. And your questions oh. were amazing. So oh. thanks so much. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. That means a lot to me. Hey, storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, that wraps up our conversation with the one and only Jacqueline Woodson. You can find her on Twitter at Jackie Woodson. That's J-A-C-K-I-E-W-O-O-D-S-O-N. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode today. And please remember to head over to 88cupsofteacom slash learn where I'm gathering all of the podcasts, books, documentaries, and movies that I've been learning from. And also, I'll be posting all the links to the organizations that I've donated to. And this page is dedicated to educating ourselves collectively as the 88 Cups of Tea community so that we can do our part in challenging the oppression that's been set up since the inception of America. You can also head over to Jacqueline's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash Jacqueline-Woodson. There you can find the highlights with timestamps throughout the entire episode, along with our favorite quotes from the conversation and links to her recommended books and resources. Thank you so much. I will catch you in the next episode.